Hey, good morning again, everybody. We just wanted to make sure you know that we're back in resurgence, so we had to shake the room like the Holy Spirit is showing up. So, no, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Acts. We are going to be back in the series that we've been in since last September. And uh, last couple weeks, um, my wife and I have been on vacation. So if you weren't here, we weren't here either. Um, and it was when we had a great time away, but you guys had the one-two punch with Larry Powers and Dan Stewart, which both are amazing uh, communicators and pastors, leaders, two, two leaders who have profound impact in my life. And that's why every summer I ask them to come back because uh, they're great. And, uh, but this morning we're going to jump back in. If you have your Bibles, we'll be Acts chapter 20. We'll look at verse 17 to verse 38. And so again, we're, we're on this journey through the book of Acts that is revisiting the past, which means we're going back to the story in Acts when the, first, the church was first established and looking at what happened then, how it unfolded, and then asking the question, what does that mean for us today? How should we live our lives in light of what we've, we've learned and seen from the book of Acts? And so this morning we'll look at a passage of scripture, which is really a very personal um, kind of scene for Paul. We've, we've read a lot about Paul's journeys, and he's been in Ephesus on and off for about three years, and has had a profound impact in people's lives. And now he's, know, he's going to be leaving Ephesus. And as he does that, he, he stops to spend some time with these people who he loves dearly and shares his heart. And what he, in fact, what he does is really kind of, it's pretty powerful. He kind of pulls back the curtain of his life and says, this is what I've done the last three years. This is the person that I've been to you. This is the way I've lived my life. This is kind of the inner workings of who I am so they can see, especially as he talks to a group of leaders and influencers, this is the way I've lived my life with you. And so what Paul's describing is not just necessarily how he specifically has lived with the, the Ephesians, but how somebody who's a follower of Jesus is to live a life of impact, to find ourselves in the midst of God's story of human history where God is reaching out to humanity to draw them back into relationship with God. Each one of us experiencing that through Jesus is now a part of that story and should be a person who brings impact in the lives of other people. And so this morning we're going to look at Paul's story here and, and realize that what Paul is sharing with us is something that we call values, in fact, the word values is overused in our culture now. There's values for everything. And, and usually when you hear the word values, usually it's taken by someone to you, you mean a certain kind of thing, like more of a conservative kind of, we have family values or Christian values. But everybody has values. It doesn't matter who you are. In fact, every single day of your life, whether you know it or not, you make most of your decisions based on a value. What is a value? A value is something that you assess worth to. And so because something is valuable to you, it actually becomes an internal motivation to take action. That's a value. And so most of the decisions you make in everyday life is driven by a value. Now, it may not be the right value or a good value, but it is a value. Here, here's an example. So last Sunday night when we pulled back into town after being on vacation, I, I thought to myself, is later in the afternoon, maybe four or five, and I thought, I'm going to run by Costco and get gas. Anybody ever contemplated going to Costco? You have to gear up for that, Right. And, and, and I've discovered, I don't know if you know this, but if you go on, uh, if you just do a Google search and put in Costco gas, actually, if you scroll down on that, on the maps, on, on Google Maps, it actually tells you how busy Costco gas is. In fact, it has a little bar graph that tells you on that day, at that time, that's the average amount of how busy it is. And then it tells you by category how much more busy it is than normal. It'll say busy, very busy, extremely busy, like ridiculous, don't even think about going there busy. Seriously, it has all these things. And so I looked at that, and it was like a name or a, a category I had not seen yet. It was like more than double the normal busyness at that hour. I'm like, oh, I don't think I should go there. And then I'm thinking, why? I know it, it's busy, but why is it so busy? And then it hit me. 
That was June 30th. The next day was July 1st. And July 1st was when the second part of the gas tax went into effect. A whole whopping six cents more per gallon. And that was driving people to go to Costco gas. Why? Because I got to save six cents per gallon. Now, some of you are like, well, of course. I was in that long line of 30 or 40 minutes to get gas. But I just want you to think about that for a moment. How much money would, are you going to save at six cents per gallon by waiting till the next morning? Maybe if you have a motorhome, it might be worth a couple bucks. But most people in average car, it's less than a dollar. So you're going to go and you're going to wait 45 minutes to get gas at Costco because you're going to save a buck. What is that decision? That's a values decision. That is a value that says, I value money, money, I'm cheap or I'm frugal, and I want to go save money, so I'm going to go wait in a long line. Now, others who would say, like me, I, usually, I do value money, but I'm thinking, how much is my time worth? I didn't go to Costco because I did the math, and I said, you know what? In this case, I value convenience over money. And I went and paid my extra 85 cents at another gas station to fill my tank. That was a values decision. Now, I use that as an example because every decision we make is driven by something that we value. That, that's how you know what's important in your life by what you do with your life. And that's what, what Paul's pulling back the curtain, what we're going to see in this passage, is this is what he's saying. This is what drives me. This is what is internally going on in me that brings to the surface the behavior that you've witnessed over the last three years. And so for us as followers of Jesus is these are the kind of things that we want to learn to value in our life so that our life can make an impact. Now, before I go on and we'll jump into the passage, we're going to kind of work our way through the passage and I'll revisit this at the end. The tendency to do what we're going to do in the next 30 minutes or so is we're going to go through eight values that Paul held in his life. Our tendency is to make a list of those eight and either feel really good about some and really bad about the others and then walk away trying harder to create values in our life. You're thinking, well, yeah, isn't that what we're supposed to do? No, that, that would be the worst thing you could do. Because what you're going to realize as we go through the eight values, apart from the divine work of God in your life, there's no way you're going to keep those values. Because the values that Paul shares are values that were created in him because he was surrendered to Jesus and was transformed by the Holy Spirit. So this is a list for us to submit to God, say, God, would you help me to value those things in my life? Not with my own ability, but with your transforming work in me. So just don't walk away thinking, man, I got four out of eight or I got two out of eight. Man, I stink. I'm horrible. Don't rate yourself. But let's reflect on what Paul's life looked like and how our life is supposed to look like today. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go through verse 17 through 38 and Acts 20. But let me just start by reading verses 17 and 18 because this is kind of his initial like, hey, this is what I'm about to tell you. So he says this, and this is Paul, it says of Paul, and it says in verse 17, he says, Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he's saying, listen, you guys have seen me live my life. This is what my life's been. And then now the rest of the passage is, this is how I lived my life. Let me remind you of the things I valued that have brought impact in your lives. And so these are the eight things we're going to look at. Values that make an impact. The first one is this, verse 19 is, is the concept of humility. So Paul says this, he says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul's saying, listen, as he pulls back the curtain, he said, what drives my life is humility. Now you think, wait, if you say you're humble, are you really humble? Yeah, because what, what Paul's describing is, is that we, normally we think oh, humility and pride are the two kind of polar opposites, but what Paul is describing is something that's deeper than that. 
Because what Paul is saying is, is humility is something he values in light of what? In light of the trials that he has faced at the hands of the Jews. The persecution he's experienced in his life, the challenges he's faced, he has approached them with humility. Now, what does that mean? So here's the difference. The opposite of humility is not pride. You know what the opposite of humility is? Entitlement. Because what humility does is humility realizes that you and I are saved by grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor given to us, not because we're good enough, but because it's God's choice. So it comes to us not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. That's grace. Paul lives in that. And grace causes you and I to live with humility. Why? Because we can't do anything on our own. We don't have any pride in what we've done. It's only in what God's done. So his approach is this. If I live a humble life, I accept everything that comes from God, good or bad. Because God is the one that's in control. That means when you're going through a trial, if you were here a couple weeks ago, and Larry Powers talked about this, if you're going through a trial, you can go through that trial and you can still be grateful to God for your life. But you know what happens? When we don't live in humility, when we don't value humility, you know what we value? We value entitlement. And entitlement says this, I deserve. See, we, we, if we got the concept of grace, someday we will, but if we really got grace, we would live in humility. Because we would realize everything we get is a gift from God. Everything. Every day, every moment, every breath, even the trials we go through, God is at work in those trials. And we're grateful for those. Why? Because everything comes by God's grace. But the moment you and I think that we have earned something, then we become entitled. And that's why when we go through trials, the first person we get mad at is who? God. Why are you doing this to me? Don't you see I'm a good person? Anybody want to admit you've ever said that? I'm not as bad as them. Why are you doing this? It's like Job has every right to say that to God. God, why are you doing this to me? I'm the most righteous guy on the face of the earth. And why have you taken everything away from me? That's entitlement. But Paul says what drives his life is this. I will take the good. I will take the bad. Why? Because everything comes by God's grace. And if you and I were able to live that way, can you imagine what it would be like to not live entitled, to not think that you deserved anything? Wouldn't it be nice if, you feel, if your kids lived that way too? We raise kids unintentionally to become entitled. You know how we do that? We reward behavior and tell them to earn this, which is not bad, but if that's all that we do, you know what we're telling them? We're telling them it all lies on you. You earn this, and therefore, if you've earned it, guess what? You do deserve it. And then we introduce him to Jesus and says, he says, no, 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 you can't earn anything. And then our kids are at a loss. Wait, 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 the whole, my whole life I've been told I can earn. No, 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 not with Jesus. Paul got that. So what drives him is humility. I take the good and the bad, and I can make it through because of God's grace. Second thing, verse 20, selflessness. So Paul goes on in verse 20, and he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. This is a really powerful statement. So Paul uses this phrase, profitable. He says, basically, if you translate the word, it means to gain a benefit from somebody else. So Paul's focus in his life, in living out his life, is that others would gain benefit from his life. So when Paul came to Ephesus and he spent three years with these people, his primary focus was not what am I going to get from these people, but what am I going to give to them? In other words, if you really break this down, what Paul's saying is that you and I should never gain profit from other people if that's our motive, but people should gain profit from us. Which means ask the question, what are people profiting from my life? Are they profiting anything? 
or am I somebody who is actually taking profit from them? That I'm taking something from them. See, what we should live lives like Paul, that he's walking away from a group of people that we, at the end of the passage, most likely he knows where he's going and he's probably not going to see them again. But he's leaving with them this idea. I have given you the profit of, my, of me being with you. You've gained benefit from my life, which has been the sole focus of why I've been here. So when I leave, you have still have a profit for my influence in your life. Now think about your life. Is it profitable for people to know you? Or is it a liability? Think about it. Are people better for knowing you or are they worse for knowing you? See, when we live by values that drive us, that we are selfless, then we always think about what is the best for this person? What is in it for them? How can I help them? Not how can I gain? How can I benefit? How, what's in it for me? Which is the struggle of our faith. We live in that tension every day. We're always asking the question, what's in it for me? We just don't articulate it, but we make decisions based on what that's a value. Paul's value was switched, which was how can I set this up in such a way that these people would profit from my life? It's the same thing Jesus did. Jesus didn't take anything for himself, did he? He let others profit from his sacrifice. So Paul's highlighting for us humility. He's highlighting this, this selflessness, which looks at other people and wants them to profit. Then there's a third thing. The values that make an impact also have to do with equality. Verse 21, then Paul says this. He says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith of our faith uh, in the Lord Jesus. So let's just pause for a moment. What, what is Paul talking about? This is a Jew, Paul, who was of the people of God, who came, became transformed with his encounter with Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we've read through the book of Acts, we come to this amazing revelation. God loves all people. And when this story first starts starting out, most of the Jews are convinced they are the privileged people before God. Therefore, everybody else is a second-class citizen. And suddenly, through different circumstances, like Peter's experience of God lowering down unclean food before him and then sending him to Cornelius' house, says, oh, no, 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 no. Everyone's equal. Everyone has access to the gospel. In other words, there are no outsiders and insiders. The only person who determines who's in is out is who? Jesus himself. But boy, do we like to do that. We create categories of people. And Paul lived by this value. There aren't categories of people who are worthy and unworthy, who are in and who are out. It's just people. And it's all the people that God loves. And that's why a Jew could go to a Gentile and tell them about the gospel and rejoice in the fact that they would get saved. Why? Because God loves people. This is important for us because we, we live in these categories and God wants us to break free that we are not supposed to determine who is in and out, who's the insider, who's the outsider. I want you just to think about that because all of us at one time or another in our life, we have felt like the outsider. Culturally, for most of us, not all of us, but many of us, we feel like we're part of the majority culture, so we fit within the place that we live. But what would it be like if you were the person who was on the outside looking in? That you, you weren't the one that understood the language and the culture and everything. You were the outsider. Every once in a while, I get to experience that. I shared a few weeks ago how I'm helping to coach some Chinese leaders. And so I went down to the Alhambra, San Gabriel area to meet with them. If, if you want to feel, if you're, of course, if you're not Asian, this works for you. If you're Asian, this won't work for you. You'll feel right at home. But if you, if you go down to San Gabriel or Alhambra right now, you walk into those cities and you will feel like an outsider. Not because people are mean or intentionally do that. It's because unless you speak Mandarin, 
or Cantonese, you won't understand the language. 99% of the signs that you're going to see on businesses are written in Chinese. 99% of the restaurants and the grocery stores are all Chinese businesses. And most of the people, literally, as I was driving through the cities, I'm not exaggerating, 99% of the people walking on the streets were Asian. And I felt like I was in China. And there was a strange feeling like when I got out of my car and walking in the parking lot, nobody speaks my language. And if they do, they're not speaking it. So I don't understand anybody. I don't understand the signs. I don't know where I'm going. I'm completely lost. I'm a complete outsider. Anybody ever felt that before? The gospel says there's no such thing as an outsider. And that's what Paul came to realize. There's no outsiders. Therefore, as a Christian and follower of Jesus, we don't get to determine outsiders. We don't get to say, oh, no, no, no. That means we're supposed to love all people, go to all people, value all people. Why? That's a value inside of us. It's the value that Jesus demonstrates, the value that the gospel demonstrated throughout the book of Acts, that we are a people that value everyone with the equal value and the love of God. Listen to how Paul describes this outsider-insider mentality in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This is a paraphrase called The Message. Paul says this, but don't take any of this for granted, for it was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the, uh, the way uh, God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. That's awesome. That means the people that you can't stand, they get access to be in on everything if they choose Jesus. Maybe it's not cultural or ethnicity. Maybe it's lifestyle. Maybe it's somebody's certain sin, and you've marginalized them. Why? Because you see them as an outsider when God's calling them to be an insider. We have equal value for people. And then the fourth value that Paul talks about here is the concept of courage, verses 22 to 23. He says, and behold, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Literally translated, it's like Paul's being forced by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, which will eventually lead, lead to his arrest, which will eventually lead him to Rome, and eventually down the road in his life, he will lose his life for Jesus. Paul knows that's coming, but what does he do? Knowing the trials that await me, knowing what awaits me, I still go. Why? Because he has courage to do that, because he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's been transformed. He has courage. We sang a song earlier today, You Make Me Brave. Anybody ever need to be brave? Raise your hand, because we're all afraid. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul has this underlying driving force of courage in his life. Why? Because he knows that the will of God for his life is going to include imprisonment, trials, and eventual death. Now, I want us just to pause for a moment because this is a real important adjustment in our values. So we have a theology, which is we, we think the way God works, our belief about God, I think is a little skewed from what Paul's belief about God was. Our belief about the way God works in our life, for the most part, and I know I'm generalizing, is that God always chooses the path of least resistance for our lives. We do. We, we say things like God's favor God keeps opening doors for me. Now, those are not wrong things, but we always equate God's will with no imprisonment, no trials, no struggle, only smooth sailing. Must be God. Anybody agree? Isn't that how we, we believe? If that's true, then what Paul is saying is not true. He's saying, I'm compelled by the Spirit with courage to go, what, facing imprisonment and trials, and eventually he knows he's going to die for Jesus. What does that mean? 
That means sometimes God will open doors and sometimes God will give you favor and sometimes God will clear the path for you, but other times God will compel you to say you're going to go into a dangerous situation. You're going to go into a difficult time. You're going to go through a trial. You're going to go through whatever it might be. And that's where I'm drawing you to because that's where I'm at work, but I'm going to give you courage to do it. If you don't have a value of courage, you will always think the only way God wants me to move if it's smooth sailing if it's a clear path, if it's a straight road, and you will miss out on the majority of what God wants to do in you and through you. Why? Because you're convinced God will only allow me not to feel pain in this life to know it's his will. That's not what they understood. How many times have we read through, they're getting thrown in jail, they're getting persecuted, they're getting beaten, and that's all part of living out God's will in their life. Aren't you encouraged? Aren't you glad you came to church today to know that God's will could include pain for your life? But there has to be a shift because no offense to anybody, but I've heard people describe where they're going in life and how God's leading them. And very rarely do I hear someone say, boy, I'm really feeling compelled to go into this dangerous situation. Usually it's like, look at what God has done to bless me. This is how I know it's the will of the Lord. So just pause when you think that that's the way. God may work that way. God blesses his people. But don't let that be the only test of whether or not it's, it's God's will or not. If we value courage, it doesn't matter what God's uh, leading us into, we will go. Then the... The fifth one, this is the core of the passage. This is the core of Paul's life. This is the one, if you don't get any of the others, this is the one you want to get. The value that makes an impact is the gospel itself. Paul says this, verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There it is. What's driving Paul? What's driving Paul to go to Ephesus? What's driving Paul to go to Troas in the passage before? What's driving Paul to eventually go to Rome? What's driving Paul to go to Gentiles to tell them the good news about Jesus? What's driving Paul? He has come to a profound understanding that in the, human, the narrative of human history, God has entered the world in Jesus to die on the cross for his sin, to free him from his sin, to give him life in this world and the next one. And because of that, that is such good news that Paul is driven by that every single day of his life. This is important. The gospel is a value. We either value it or we don't. Because the power of the gospel is not just the gospel to us, it's the gospel through us. If the gospel's good news to you, it has to be good news to somebody else. Because if it's only good news to you, it's bad news to everybody else. Because they never get access to it. But Paul was driven by this. He was driven by this understanding. The gospel penetrated his core. Jesus transformed him from the inside out. And that's part of the challenge that we face is that if we walk away thinking, man, I just got to work harder. Yeah, there's a part of our faith that is fear and trembling and working out our salvation. But the other thing is there has to be this transforming work of the Holy Spirit to become what we're supposed to be. And this is, the, this is the challenge we find ourselves in. In fact, when we hit the fall, we hit late August into September, and then probably through the end of the year, we're going to start into two different series, and the primary focus of both of those series is the gospel. And the reason why is it not like, what's the gospel? I get it. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the No, no, no. That's not the gospel. That's the reductionist view of the gospel. The gospel is all of human history that transforms human souls like this to go from persecuting the church to actually giving their life for the church. That's what Paul went through. There's something, and this is as much, that this, the series we go through is as much about my journey with Jesus as, as us collectively as a church. Something's missing in our understanding of the gospel. Because I'm getting to the end of the book of Acts, and I'm looking, man, these people, were their world was rocked. 
They were transformed. They were changed. They were not the same. And I look at my life and go, man, I'm about the same I was last September. That can't be right. I'm missing something. It's because the full impact of the gospel hasn't settled in yet. And we have to figure out what is that, God? What are, what are we bought into that's not the truth of the gospel? And how do we discover what it really means for our life? And so Paul says that. What does it mean when you discover what the gospel looks like? Now, I can't recreate this for everybody, but I know this does happen a lot of times. You really discover what the gospel looks like when you get out of your normal routine, when you get out of your normal kind of comfortable context, or you go through crisis, you go through difficulty, God gets your attention. I think it's about five years ago now, I was on one of the teams we, we sent to Haiti. And um, those of you who've been on the, t- the Haiti team, you know it works, but you, those of you who haven't, you've heard kind of the way it goes is you, you work either doing construction or VBS or you do both and you're working with kids or you're working all day. And, and so at the end of each day, you're exhausted. You've been in heat that you're not used to, humidity you're not used to, food you're eating that you're not used to. You're not used to anything. So you're kind of physically not 100%. And then what Greg Barsha does is he does a a debrief at night. And so when you're totally exhausted, you're out of your element, he opens the Bible and starts starts talking about the gospel and he starts talking about the sovereignty of God and you're all messed up. Guys have been in Haiti, you know what I'm talking about, right? And the second night of that team, Greg was talking about some different things and and I remember after we concluded our debrief, which that was when when our team would stay in a a part of Port-au-Prince called Del Mas, which was in the city and, and not out in a compound out in Oneville. And so we're up on this rooftop, it's like 90 degrees, it's really humid, and you're, you're sitting next to an open sewer, and it just smells beautiful, and you're, you're grappling with deep things about understanding of who God is. So when we finished one of these debriefs, one of the guys on the team came over, and he pulled me aside, he said, I gotta tell you something. I said, what? He said, he said I've known, known Jesus for a few years now, and he said, uh, I thought I understood what Christianity is. I thought I understood the gospel. And I said, okay, go on. <laughs> he goes, but I don't. He said, I, I always thought that Christianity was going to church, trying to be a good person, doing more good than bad, giving a little bit of money, uh, trying to be a moral person, maybe serve a little at church. He said, that's what I thought Christianity is. I said, well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> he said, but I looked at that and he goes, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. I said, then what is? And he looked around and he said, this is. He said, I'm I'm in a place, I'm giving my life away to a group of people who are desperate for food, desperate for the gospel, and I'm giving myself away. He said, this is what the gospel looks like. This is what Christianity looks like. And I just stood there silent, almost wanted to cry. And all I could think about in that moment is that I would pay a million dollars for every single person at Antioch to experience the same thing that he was experiencing in that moment. At that moment, the gospel hit him for the first time in his life. He's no longer the same person even today. He's changed. Is his life perfect? No. But he understands something about the fact that the gospel now drives him more than it ever did before because he saw what it looked like when people are desperate. He saw what he was outside of his comfort zone, giving himself away. He realized this is what my life's supposed to be about. Now, does it mean you have to go to Haiti to discover the gospel? I don't know. You might have to. Maybe it means you need to just do something outside of the routine that God can impact you and show you what the gospel really looks like. Then there's a fifth thing, verse 25 to 27. Another value, believe it or not, is this concept called accountability, that we value an accountability of our own lives. So listen to what Paul says. He says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among you have gone about preaching and proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
So he's spending three years with this group of people, and this is what he's saying. My conscience is clean before you. I haven't held anything back. I haven't sugarcoated anything. I've given you the truth and his love for them, but he gave them all of what they needed to know about who Jesus is, the gospel, everything. He held nothing back. Why? Because Paul knew that there's an accountability that drives his life that says that someday I will stand before God and say, did I do everything I could do? Did I share everything I could share? Did I give everybody what they needed to know about who God was? Or in fear, did I pull back? Did I shrink back because I was afraid of what people might think or say if I was honest with them? That's where we need courage. Because we get to a place where, and hear me, and we'll talk about this next, the next one and talk about a little about truth. But sometimes we're so afraid to offend people, we don't say anything. We, I think in Christianity, we go to two extremes. We do nothing because we're afraid of offense, and then we go over to this extreme, and we live offensively, and we blame it on the gospel. Neither one of them are right. The gospel naturally offends people, by the way. Sometimes we do a little bit more than what the gospel does. We live offensive lives. When we tell people that God hates them and he's sending them to hell, that's not the gospel. That's not even the Bible, by the way. He's not. Because the Bible is very clear. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose that because they choose it by default, by rejecting him. God doesn't go after and say, okay, I'm going after that person because I want them to go to hell. No, God is what not willing that any would perish, that all would what come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. So that's the truth. But we're afraid. Paul got over his fear and he says, listen, as I leave you after three years, I've held nothing back from you. I've given you everything. As I read that, I, it was convicting to me. In fact, there's something else that convicted me, and it f- came from the strangest place. When we were, uh, the last weekend of our vacation, we went down to Huntington Beach with about a million other people. And, and so we were walking on the pier, and we were coming off the pier. If you've been down to Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach, the pier comes right off onto Main Street, the main drag right there. And so as we're coming off the pier, we're waiting literally at the, at the, at the stoplight there with probably about two or 300 people. That's like at that general area, just packed, waiting for the lights to turn green. And I, I hear some a voice like over the, the crowd and I turn and sure enough, there's a guy standing there. He's in nice slacks and he's got a nice button down shirt, long sleeve shirt. And there's a guy standing next to him and has a sign that says something about, it wasn't this extreme, but something like, you know, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell, something like that, you know. So I'm like, okay, it's a street preacher. And, and he's going, going after it. And I looked at it and the first thing in my mind, I'm just, I'm just gonna be honest with you, I just thought, shut up. You're not doing the gospel any favors right now. That's the first thing that came to my mind. And I listened a little bit of what he was saying, and it was very condemning, and people weren't listening. He was preaching to an audience of, I don't know, none, because nobody was really listening to him. And I just, it grieved me, because I thought, there's got to be a better way to communicate the gospel. Then the light turned green, and we started walking. And as we started walking, this hit me. Although I don't agree with his method, at least he's got the guts to tell people the truth which is more than you do at times. Now, I didn't walk away thinking, man, I gotta go get my sign and I'm gonna go find a street corner in Simi Valley. And No, I'm not doing that because I don't believe in that method, but I do admire his courage and his accountability before the Lord to present the truth to people. But one of the things, if you've been a part of Antioch, I think one of the, the, the primary mechanisms that God uses and it actually is far more effective today than any other mechanism is sharing the truth of who Jesus is through our lives and our relationships. So I started to think through, who am I not giving the whole counsel of God to? Who am I not, who am I holding back because I'm afraid that they're gonna be offended or they're gonna reject me or, 
And I started to think, there's, there's a couple of my neighbors that I, I know, I, there's more that needs to be said that I haven't said yet. I've had great conversations, got to know them, but I haven't gone where I think I need to go at times. Now, again, it's not to be offensive. It's not just to, to running up to people and pointing out everything that's wrong in their life, but it's the moments that God opens the door that you and I walk through it and say, you know what, this, I really want you to know this. And when it's done in love, it comes across differently. But there's an accountability to our lives that should drive us. I've been given the greatest information transforming work in human history. I have to be accountable to share it with other people. Then there's a seventh thing. There's two more here. Seventh is truth, which is similar to the last one. But listen to what Paul says, verse 28 to verse 31. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained or he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own, uh, yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I want you to just think about this for a moment. What is Paul saying? Listen, I'm going to leave. And sure enough, m- much of the New Testament is written, by the way, and some of the epistles are written to correct false teaching, a lot of it, and false living. But what's going to happen is that you've got this great thing called the truth, but it's going to get distorted. It's going to get twisted. It's going to get deceived in your mind by people who are going to come and say things that sound really good and they sound like truth, but they're twisted just enough actually to be a lie. Now, this is important for us today because we're in a season in the church where we we are very tolerant of different things. And there's it's good in that and that we're gracious with each other. But sometimes we tolerate stuff that is not things that things that should be tolerated. We acquiesce to culture, and we let culture define for us what life following Jesus looks like. And the one standard that's supposed to define our lives is the scriptures, not the culture. Now, there's a balance between the two. Hear me on this, because culture is part of what we live in. But there's a standard that God places for our lives, and sometimes we'll look at the scriptures, and we begin to reinterpret the scriptures in light of what we think is true. But you can't do that. Because if you start reinterpreting historic things that have been true of the church for 2,000 years and say, ah, no, that's not what the Bible's saying, be careful. That's the very thing that Paul was warning of in this passage. People will come along and they're going to distort things. They're going to use it. Because, by the way, lies don't show up and identify themselves as lies. Lies show up as truth, just so you know. That's the way a lie works. Otherwise, you and I, oh, I can identify a lie. A lie. No, a lie never den- identifies itself. It has to be determined and discerned. It, become, it comes through the mode of deception. And that's why we believe things that we shouldn't believe. And that's why part of what I talked about when we hit the, the fall, there's things we believe about the gospel that are not true. There's things that we don't believe about the gospel that are true. And because of that, we've allowed some deception into our mind that the truth of what the gospel has been lost and we have to come back to that again because it's the driving force in our lives. And what, is it, what does it mean for God to do what he's done in human history? What does it mean for my life? What does it mean for my city? What does it mean for my household? What does it mean for my neighborhood? What does it mean for my behavior? What does the gospel mean for all of that? Because part of what the series we're going to walk through, a very lengthy series called The Gospel Shapes, how the gospel shapes everything in our lives. The gospel shapes your sexuality. The gospel shapes your finances. The gospel shapes your career. Shapes everything. But when we allow culture to do the shaping for us, then we're left with nothing but what the culture provides, which is usually in opposition of the truth of what God has for us. Not always, but many times it is. I'll move off because we're getting, that's coming in the fall. But truth, knowing the truth and following the truth. 
And then there's a final, final point, too. And that's this. Look at verse 32 to 35. This last value that Paul highlights is the value of generosity. He says this, And now I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are, are sanctified. I coveted no one's uh, silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we uh, must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So what is Paul talking about? There's a couple things he's talking about. So Paul, by career, was not an apostle. He was a tent maker. And when he came to Ephesus, he made a commitment to work as a tent maker to make a living so that he could present the gospel to the, the Ephesians for free, which is amazing what he did. But he's not only talking about him as a tent maker, but he's talking about his life. He's talking about the generosity, not just saying, listen, you're not going to have to, I'm not going to have to take a love offering. Or you're not going to have to support me. I'm going to support myself. That's one thing. But what he's saying is he's saying deeper than that. He goes, I worked hard to give you my life generously so that you can have the impact of the gospel in your lives. He's generous with himself. And this is, this is significant. There's a number of things that are significant about this. I want you to understand a couple things I want to highlight. We've talked about, I've mentioned this before. Paul is making a very important distinction. There is a difference between his career and his calling. I talked about this before. We get those two things confused. Very few people get to live out their career and their calling in the same regard. I'm one of those that get to do that. But for most of us, that's not the way it works. We have a calling and then we have a career. The career pays the bills, but the calling is why you're alive. And that's why you may be a dentist, a doctor, a teacher, a firefighter, uh, a trash collector, whatever you are, a secretary, an attorney, whatever it is. Those are things that you do, but that's not who you are. Because your calling is who God's called you to be. Paul's calling was to be an apostle, to present the gospel, to plant churches, to see people get saved. That was his calling. So everything in his life aligned itself to that so he could generously give his life away for his calling. Now hear me, you're thinking, man, that means I have to work harder. No, 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 listen. Just don't get the two confused. Because this is what I, I think I've discovered about myself and I think I've discovered about our church. Our church is extremely generous financially, beyond its size. We raised in like less than a month, I think it was about a month, we raised $20,000 to buy a bus in Haiti. That's crazy. That's super generous. When we asked you to give to things like camp sponsorships or whatever else, our church gives. It's incredible. And I give too. I try to be generous. But I'll tell you, I know one of the areas that I struggle in generosity, and I think maybe you're like me, and I think our church does this, there's something more valuable than my money. It's my time. That's a bigger commodity, a more valuable commodity to most of us. And so usually when we're presented with an opportunity to invest time, if we we're honest with ourselves, we'd rather write a check. I don't want to go to Haiti, but I'll support it. I don't want to go to camp with kids, but I'll write a check to send them there. <laughs> Hear me, I'm not trying to critique anybody. What I'm saying is sometimes it's easier to write a check than it is to actually give ourselves. Paul's saying, not only did I write a check, I gave you my life. Why is that important? Because God set the ultimate example. When humanity was struggling in its sin and had no hope to get freed from it, God did not write a check. He sent his son. He sent a person. He gave his life for us. 
So what does God require of us? What does he call us? What does he call us to value? Generosity financially, but generosity in our time. If we keep finding ourselves saying this phrase, I don't have time, then you will have to ask yourself the question, why don't you have time for your calling? Because you have so much emphasis and, and bandwidth and energy and time invested in your career that your calling is non-existent. Because I've watched people in my life, in this church and other churches I've pastored, who have come to that conclusion. And I'm not saying this is you, but I've watched people switch careers for that very reason. I've watched people have lucrative careers and walk away because they realize that career is costing me my calling. I can't be what God's called me to be. Why? Because I'm working 60 hours a week at that job and I have nothing left for what God's called me to do. Now, I'm not saying that's anybody in this room, but I'm saying that you have to ask the question because, look, I, I got to work. When you stand before Jesus someday, is he going to pat you on the back for working 60, 80 hours a week? No, he's not. He's going to say, did you do what I called you to do? Did you, I love this, because this, this one phrase that Paul says here in verse 35, he says it's more blessed to give than receive. You can't find that in the Gospels. Paul's quoting from Jesus that we never have any every written record of except right here. He's saying it's more blessed, what, to give away than to receive. To give away what the calling that God's given to me, to give my life away is better than getting anything I can get back in return. So we're to give our lives away. This is the thing that drives Paul. These are the things that drive Paul. And so this is what I, how I want to conclude. I'm going to ask you again just to close your eyes and then I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll conclude. But, but this is important because, hear me, I, I know I feel this in myself and I know this happens when I have dialogues with people that there's this sense that when we look at a list of like, characteristics or values that the takeaway is to work harder to make those happen in our life. Now there is work to be done in our lives. But I want you to know Paul has just pulled back the curtain in his life and shown and demonstrated to us values that have become a part of who he is that go back to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where Jesus got his attention and completely changed the direction of Paul's life. Three days later, when Paul was blinded, and he is encountered by a man named Ananias, and the Lord removes the, the scales from his eyes so he can see at that moment, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. So within three days' time, he surrendered his life to Jesus, and now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the values in Paul's life completely start to change. It wasn't that Paul got a list and said, I'm going to really work hard to have these virtues and characteristics. It was a surrendering of his life to God's purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in a moment, I'm going to pray with your eyes closed. I'm just going to, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to do what we all need him to do, to fill us with his spirit again. If you're in the place, this place and you obviously are a follower of Jesus, you've experienced the goodness of the gospel, the grace of God that has forgiven you for sin to make it possible to live your life and to be in relationship with God. If you haven't experienced that, I'll pray for you today that you would make that decision. In fact, you can come talk to me after the service is over. I would love to help you discover how you connect with God through Jesus. But for the rest of us, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And just again, with your eyes closed before I pray, I want to just share something, the tension I felt this week. As I prepared this message, I knew that, that the danger of giving a list of things that people will walk away with. And, and so as I was coming towards this Sunday, just that I felt the pressure to make something happen. 
some dynamic work of God has to happen in our service. And I put so much on Sunday and leaning into it and just feeling that, that sense that at the end of it, kind of feeling, man, John, you really got to make it happen. And then the Lord reminded me, you're not God. I am. And when I began to think about that, I realized something so important. In our gatherings, we anticipate and we expect and we come and we surrender to the reality that we will experience the power of God through His Spirit in our gatherings. But if we are just hanging on to get to a service to experience the Holy Spirit, then we're missing it. We're missing Him because Paul said we're to be continually filled every day with the Holy Spirit. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but then I'm going to encourage you as you leave today and you get up tomorrow morning, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. When you get up on Tuesday morning, you're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. When you get to Tuesday afternoon, guess what? You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit again because there's something in us in our lives that causes us to forget of the power of God resident within us through His Spirit. And we need to be daily filled with His Spirit. So Lord Jesus, in fact, just where you're seated, in fact, would you go ahead, just stand. I think it would be more appropriate just to stand. And as you stand, just, just place your hands out in front of you right now as a way of receiving. Lord Jesus, when we look at what, what made Paul's life work, what he valued, what drove him underneath the surface, we know, Lord, that none of those things are going to naturally come to us. So they have to supernaturally come to us. So, Lord, as we surrender ourselves to you right now, we ask that you would come by your spirit. You would fill us. You would empower us. Lord, just 2,000 years ago, we know what you did. We know that you came and you separated tongues of fire over people and you filled them with your spirit so they would speak in other languages they didn't understand and people heard the truth of the praises of who you are. But, Lord, I know the next day, those same people had to be filled again and again and again and again so they could live lives of courage. They could live lives that were driven by the gospel. They could give everything to you. So, Lord, today we ask to be filled with the Spirit, but, Lord, we make a commitment that tomorrow and the next day and the next day that we will submit ourselves to being filled by your Spirit so that we have the power in every moment to do what you've called us to do, to live out the calling you've given us, to live our life fully driven and motivated by the gospel. Jesus, that you love us and you love all people and you've made a way for us to be connected with God. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would empower us as we leave this place to live out the life you've called us to live. In Jesus' name.